What skills have you developed or improved because of D&D? What, so what have we gotten better at because of our experience as a dungeon master? Yeah. No. I mean, for me, I think there's an easy answer for me. Um, it's, it's accents. Um, I, I think I talked about it last episode, but I, I am obsessed with accents. And I think that stems a lot from Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, because the NPCs, I want them to have flavor. I want them to have life. Um, and so because of that, I, I give them unique and sometimes silly and ridiculous accents um, to the point where I think I've gotten pretty decent at accents. You know, I, I, I still can't do like a New Zealander accent or a South African accent. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I can do enough of some, some silly accents like Russian or English, um, or, you know, Irish for me, definitely it's, it's my ability to do kind of party trick accents. For me, it's the ability to be the center of attention without getting stage fright or being overwhelmed or intimidated. Huh. There was... I don't know what happened, but around the age of 16 or 17, all of a sudden I got very uncomfortable around my family. I have probably a lot of people can relate to this, but I have a big family and, and occasionally you talk and all of a sudden you have a lot of people looking at you. It's like stage fright. And D&D helped me get over that because obviously in D&D people are looking at you to talk all the time. And additionally, I guess the bonus for my things that i've learned is just the ability to improvise really 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 fast like a lot of information the first few times i ran dnd i felt like my brain was a christmas tree because it was just completely lit up <laughs> yeah no mm -hmm. seriously like when you're in the zone like i feel like dungeon mastery is something that really puts you in the zone creatively where just every mm -hmm. bit of your brain is working overtime yeah. to play certain characters and manage the plot and keep the players on board and focused. Like, absolutely. I was thinking about this. Um, there could probably be some kind of research paper about all the disciplines required to run, to be a DM. Uh, for instance, math, social interaction, storytelling, uh, consistency, right? Like accents, whatever. It's, it's, a full meal for your brain. Absolutely. Yeah. And improvisation on top of that just makes mm -hmm. everything light up even more. What about you, David? Oh, um, what skills have I learned? I think having fun is probably the biggest Wait, skill that I've learned. Wait, what? <laughs> having fun. So before D&D, &D, I David. lived a miserable existence where I had not an ounce of fun. <laughs> but then I discovered Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and now my life is all fun. No, but um, let me explain. So I think before D&D, &D, I would treat things very competitively. And when you start to play D&D, &D, you can... You, it takes the fun away when you focus entirely on just like competition and just winning. And when you focus more on the story and doing what's interesting, not necessarily what's the best move per se, it makes the game so much more fun. And you can just kind of relax and have a good time and not necessarily absolutely have to kill everything in your path. Sometimes you play a character who's kind of wimpy and they just run away. And that's totally okay. And that makes it more interesting. I think that's a really good insight because for the listeners who don't personally know David, he's really good at games, board games, video games, whatever. Like he will win. And so that's an interesting observation on the shift in your mindset from going from competition and winning to um, kind of putting the needs of fun and of the table and of the, the game mm -hmm. first.
Welcome to Vox Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. And this is a Dungeons & Dragons podcast, episode 6, Group Dynamics. And be warned to our gentle listener, this might be a little more serious in tone than our normal episodes. We're talking about group building and, and dynamics. Let's talk about the importance of getting the right people in your game. Jake, how did you build your group? Ugh, th- I mean, this question's tough for me because I've always been like, a huge, huge extrovert. And so I've always had, you know, a big circle of friends and even a bigger group of acquaintances um, to kind of choose from in regards to playing board games with or eventually playing tabletop uh, RPGs with. So I don't know. This one's hard for me about building a group because I've always kind of had a group ready at all times. Um, So it is about choosing the right people. But I think I was kind of lucky in my high school and college experience because I always had a big group to choose from. Um, and a lot mm-hmm. of people do not have a big group to choose from, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. if you live in a small town yeah. um, or you have a, a small group of friends. Like kind of it's like, yeah, I mean, these are my friends. This is my group of friends that I'd be willing to play a board game with or go to the other person's house. Um, so. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of at a loss to this. Like, this is something that I know is super important. Um, but I'm trying to think. I don't know if I really have anything to add. <laughs> I, I don't know. This is an interesting problem, Jake, because you are a huge extrovert. Yeah. And then David and I, I would say, are more introvert with extroverted tendencies. Mm-hmm. For our listeners, I'm curious to know how many of them are introverts, extroverts, or whatever. Please talk to us email us at voxarcanapodcast at gmail.com and let us know your personality type and the personality types of your players because i actually don't know i i feel like D attracts a more introverted group of people but obviously that's not true because of who we are yeah i don't know I, i'd love to hear again yeah you can reach out to us at twitter or facebook um at voxarcana podcast or voxarcana pod and let us know because yeah that is a really interesting dynamic of how extroverts approach the game compared to how introverts approach the game um, and how a game would be different if it was an extroverted dungeon master versus an introverted dungeon master um but yeah all of that makes an interesting stew and blend it together for your specific group and group building mm-hmm. so this kind of um is going to break down what we plan to talk about i think a little bit because i was planning on sort of giving advice on how to do it but i think really we should approach this from just telling how we have done it because i don't think there's any right way to do it all we know is our own experiences true yeah that makes sense where to do me. we begin well i mean i'll go first um for me i um was introduced to Dungeons and Dragons, just role playing in general, um, by mm-hmm. a, a friend um, <laughs> going to a, a church summer camp, um, and just fell in love with it. Um, and so I was just really itching to play with whoever I could. Um, at that point, there were no wrong answers in terms of playing with people. Um, so I think for people that really, really want to get into the game, there's no wrong way to play D anD D, and there's no wrong answers in terms of what a group looks like um, because oh, you just want to play. I disagree so much. Wait, really? Okay. <laughs> oh, I, there's definitely a wrong group. and, and yeah, Okay. All right. Unlike Jake, Jake has had a pretty consistent group once he went to college in Kentucky. Yeah. And, and, it, and from what I understand, and, and I've actually played with them for one game for your bachelor party, they're just mostly actors and improvers, and it's just 
terrific because they they're not rules lawyers they're not system nerds whatever they're just like regular people mm -hmm. who happen to be playing D D. and for my group i almost never have the same group the most consistent player is david um, and even then i had one campaign that did not have david which was kind of an experiment to see like how groups go without um, that consistency so all my players are extroverts first time D, &D players usually very young like high school students with no background at all in in video games or tabletop Wait, what? You're playing with teenagers that haven't played video games? Or did you get in a time capsule and pick them out in the <laughs> 1970s? Like, what? I, uh, you know, so this, my, I know there's going to be some of my players listening to this, so I have to be careful how I say this, because I don't want to be too proud, like a proud dad. <laughs> but the people that I love playing with the most are, like, academically gifted, uh, involved in all kinds of activities in church. Like, they're just dynamic, interesting people. And they bring a lot to the table. Oddly enough, my, my least ideal person is um, like myself. <laughs> <laughs> like a hardcore gamer that's got so much, you know, inspiration from video games. Is that what you're exactly. Okay. Like I have seen every nerdy movie and I've played every video game and I've I read system rule books for fun. <laughs> uh, much to the chagrin of my wife, who's like wishing that I'm reading anything else uh, at bed. Right. <laughs> What about you, David? How do your groups come together? Usually it's when I have a campaign idea and I'm just, I just kind of wait till I have a group of people who I think can be consistent and active. So it's more of just waiting for the right players. So sometimes I'll go long periods of time with not playing because I don't think that I have anybody who can commit to the sessions or would have fun playing, if that makes sense. Hmm. I think in regards to setting up a game, I think communication is key. Um, like, I mean, that's probably the most cliche thing I could possibly say, especially as a communication studies major. Um, but really, communication is key, as cliche as it is. <laughs> especially when you're starting a game out, you want to get the expectations of the players. Um, like, Oh, for sure. You want to know what they... Like, especially... <laughs> If they've never played D and D before, um, ask them what you know. What do you think D and D is? Ooh, uh, a lot of them will say. <laughs> a lot of them will say, "Oh, it's a video game," or "Oh, it's that thing they did on Stranger Things one time." Uh, you know, like they they will all have different ideas of what it is. But I've found um, that that normally I, I can't remember. I don't think I made this up. Maybe I did, uh, but I don't think I did. I probably heard it somewhere players can be really funneled down into three categories and the three mm -hmm. categories fit into the rpg role playing game um so the first one is the r role those are the players like me that want uh they want drama they want role playing they want acting uh they want mm -hmm. improvisation they want a real dramatic plot they want to give rousing speeches. They want to improvise their way out of um, tough social situations. Mm. Um, these are the players that really will commit to characters. They'll oftentimes have good accents. They will really, really want to play as their characters. Um, and they'll really want to get serious about the game. Um, so that's the, the first one, role. Uh, then there's playing, role-playing game. So the, the P, the second one. Uh, these are the players who just want to have a good time. These are normally friend groups that have been together for ages. Um, they just want to, you know, have beers and hang out and chill um, and just have a good, fun game night with their friends. 
Um, these these are the kind of players that just want to have a lot of inside jokes. Um, they want to laugh a lot. They want to have a lot of table talk. They want to catch up with their friends. Um, and it's a little less serious. Um, so that's the second one. And then the third one, so RPG game. Uh, these are the players that are the number crunching math nerds. They want they treat it like a video game. Uh, they want to beat the game. Oftentimes the dungeon master is antagonistic. Um, and it's trying to defeat the players, and the players are treating this as a challenge they have to overcome by being mm. the best uh, players with the best attributes they can have. Um, oftentimes, these are the players that have charisma as a dump stat. Uh, they don't care about the social interactions uh, in the game or out of the game. Uh, they just want to treat it as a board game night where they are victorious. Um, so those are kind of the three. So there's the the role players, there's the gamers, uh, and then there's just like the the players that just want to just relax and and chill. So those three, it'd be good to figure out what kind of game it is. You can absolutely incorporate all three, um, mm-hmm. but a lot of times the players um, are going to focus on one of them um, or two of them. Rarely are you going to have a player that is just all in on all of them. Um, so I think. When creating a game, when trying to get a table together, you want to figure out what they want. Are they role players? Um, Are they just playful and want to mess around and have a good time with their friends? Or are they gamers who want to really, you know, get into the game, min-max, and create the best characters they can to defeat kind of a board game, video game type game? Um, You really want to figure out which one of the three they are because that will save you a lot of time later. Because people have fun in different ways. Yeah, You know, they Mm -hmm. don't have fun the same way. That's really insightful. That that I just got to sit and digest like everything you said because I love the insight there. Hmm. Would you say you'd rather have a group that's more of one of the three or would you would you rather have a mix? Um I think it doesn't matter. I think as long as you communicate what it is. Mm. Um if you say to your players like, "Yeah, this is going to be a gaming type role-playing game. I as the DM am going I'm trying to kill you. You're trying to beat me." Um, mm-hmm. there's not going to be much story. Um, there's not going to be much messing around. That's what it is. Or if all the players are like, we just want to chill. We want to come over to your house. We want to drink beers. We want to hang out, laugh, have a bunch of inside jokes with crude humor. Uh, that's what we want instead. Um, then you, you alter the game for that. I think that's kind of the, the hard part about being a DM because for me, I love, you know, the, the first part, the R, the role playing, the role, mm-hmm. like really getting to the drama. And if I were to have my way, we would be interacting deep scenes where we're like reciting weird Shakespearean rants at each other oh um, and trying to make <laughs> trying to make each other cry and like really giving in-depth, sad, dramatic backstories. Um, but I know players don't want that. Sometimes they're like, oh, it's finals week. I just want to drink a beer and have a, a silly NPC talk to me in a Russian accent. So basically, as the DM, you have to be flexible in what they want. And really, you just have to communicate what they want. Um, you know, because it takes a dungeon master to create a game of D&D. You know, it takes a game master to have a role-playing game take place at a table. So if you have a bunch of players that want to be hardcore gamers uh, and you just want to chill, that game might not work out. Yeah, so so you really have to gauge the players and figure out what they want with really, really in-depth communication to figure out what their goals are for the game and, and figure out where they stand in kind of those three categories. Mm-hmm. Expectations can cause a lot of conflict. If you have 
expectations for your group and the players have different expectations, there's going to be conflict because they're not getting mm-hmm. what they want and you're not getting what you want. And because of that, there's going to be tension. There's going to be just unwanted conflict that is going to arise from you guys playing. So making sure everyone's on the same page to begin with is crucial to having more fun. Absolutely. My question is, um, I know a lot of our listeners are coming in because they have watched Critical Role. So having listened to or watched Critical Role, where would you say Matt Mercer and his group fall in the RPG, like uh, role player and gamer? Oh, I mean, it's so obviously in role. I mean, it's in critical role. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, they are, they're voice actors and you can tell they're, they're great at what they do. Um, They're masters of their craft. Um, And you can just tell how well they stay in character um, that they are role players. Um, I mean, we, we've got people, I I was just at Comic-Con this last week and I mean, there's people cosplaying as Dungeons and Dragons characters that just shows how much the emphasis they put into their characters um, and into their craft, into what they're creating mm. for these wonderful dramatic moments. So it's obviously that, but you can also tell that they're friends. Um, you can tell mm-hmm. when Sam Regal makes a joke that's a ridiculous pun that gets them laughing for 30 seconds and Matt Mercer's trying to get them back on track. Um, that's obviously shows that they're, you know, the play part, um, that they're all mm-hmm. a group of friends. They've done this for years. Um, but you can see that they largely neglect the game part of it. I disagree. Uh, Matt, I, I don't know. Yeah, I disagree as well. I've seen Matt make critical fails um, more significant or less significant to the point on the Dungeons and Dragons or Critical Role subreddits, people are freaking out about how Matt makes rule decisions. Um, so I think largely they don't care as much about that. I mean, Matt Mercer has come on Reddit and said, I care about the story. The story comes first. Sure. I don't care about the math um, as much. And I think that's where they they kind of side in those, those different categories. Mm -hmm. I would say that they are more like game focused in combat because they do, they use a battle map and they have, they, they keep track of, it's less improv in terms of like rules in combat. They, they have very strict, you know, they abide by five E. That's true. Yeah, Matt does stick to 5e. And I think, honestly, we're pointing at the creme de la creme. Uh, Matt Mercer's probably one of the best dungeon masters out there. So For sure. pointing at him, he probably balances those three you know, categories better than anyone that I've mm-hmm. ever seen. Oh, for sure. But why shouldn't we examine the most well-known, best, most skilled DM out there? Well, then absolutely. He, he nails all three categories, I think, to the best balance that you can. Because you... Sometimes you have to neglect math to focus on the story. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to focus on fair combat and neglect some of the table talk, you know? Um, it's it's a hard balancing act. But those are the three, I think, categories. And I think, I mean, he's, he's a master of his craft and he, he knows how to balance them best. And I think this goes back to a really important point about getting the group right. Because as you mentioned, Matt Mercer's group knows each other. They have personal relationships outside of the game. And unfortunately, um, I haven't experienced this, but I think a lot of our listeners have playing at game stores with random people every week. I don't know how you would have that trust and that consistency uh, and that quality of relationship um, without having your own private group. Huh? Well, have, have you guys ever played with strangers? Um, oh no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't play with strangers. Yeah. I've, huh? 
I would, like, I would go out and try. meet them. I would be curious. To no, play. I would. I, I would too. try to meet them outside of the game and and you know get to know them a little bit before. Mm-hmm. Man, this is. I don't. I want to try it because I, I haven't either. I, you know, I've played with like acquaintances and people that I'm not you know friends friends with. Yeah. Same. Um. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to just go in blind to a game store and just be like, "When's your when's your next game?" and just see what it's like because that sounds oh, be incredible. Interesting. Yeah, this would be a learning experience. In fact, I challenge both of you to go into a game store okay. and run a game, like volunteer game. Yeah, or I mean, yeah. it's on my list. Definitely. One last thing that I have to say is I'm so selective with who I even ask to play D&D or who I even tell that I play D&D. There's been people who I know and who I enjoy, but I won't ask them to play because I've seen them have short tempers um, and poor cooperation in groups. For, there was one uh, friend of mine. Um, we played Fishbowl, if you've ever played the game. It's also known as Monikers, if you want to buy like the official release. And we played it, I think, for a going away party once. And I saw this guy be a total immature baby about, in fact, dare I say, crybaby <laughs> about, the, about losing the game because somebody said he didn't get a, uh, a clue. And uh, I'm so careful with my group selection because I find it to be just foundational to the enjoyment of the game. Hmm. I think for me, I I will let anyone know I play D anD D just to get the word out. Of I want people as many people to know about D anD D as possible, um, and know what it is. Like it's not a video game, mm-hmm. uh, which is a common misconception. So you're just a D anD D evangelist. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm spreading the gospel. Um, but for me, I you know I've I've had the same players for so long um, that. I can easily say, you know, sorry, my 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 table's full. Um, I run at this point two weekly games. Um, oh, lucky! So yeah, so I I've got my hands full with with my table. So it's very easy for me to say I, I don't have room right now, but um, absolutely look for games. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's tough to kind of shut people down like that, but also be evangelistic about D anD D. Has anyone ever asked you? Okay, okay. I get this a lot. When people find out that I play D&D, they say, is that the game where you dress up like a wizard? Oh my gosh. What and is that like multiple from? people. I, you know, there's some Just kind of LARPing? weird misconception. Yeah, LARPing. Maybe. But then why do so many people know about LARPing, but nobody knows what actual Dungeons & Dragons Yeah, it seems like, like backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that is weird. But yeah, I get that too. It's like, oh, do you dress up for that? Or like, they'll say, do I have to wear something? <laughs> yep. What? Or do I have to talk in a funny voice? Yeah. I'm like, well, you should, yes. but you don't have to dress up. Part of the game is communicating your expectations in terms of what is the world that you're going to be in, the tone of the game, even house rules that you may have. If you're oh, tracking yeah. weight, for example, or maybe weapons have durability. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And then another part of expectations is how you expect the players to behave um if they like have to cancel like they should try to you know let you know beforehand rather than last minute five minutes before um even if you're bringing snacks if you want people to bring that these are all things that you should try to communicate to the players clearly and just have them set as expectations beforehand so that they all know what they're getting into Oh, yeah. I do this even with the people who I carefully select and have personal relationships with because as a wise man once told me, you can't over-communicate. Like, it seems like you are, but not everyone is on the same page. Yeah. So just make every effort to communicate. Even if it's something like, 
um, hey, if you're uncomfortable in my game, like just talk to me and you can you know make it clear. Um, don't just ghost me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I've heard it, uh, a wise man put it to be differently, uh, but just saying redundant communication is so much better than a lack of communication. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, confirming all these things, especially to players um, who have never played before. Uh, I think for us, we're kind of on the, you know, the wave is really getting big of what Dungeons and Dragons is. Um, you know, we're starting to see mainstream shows. I mean, think, I'm thinking of uh, Community, um, where they had, you know, two Dungeons and Dragons episodes. Um, I'm thinking mm-hmm. of like Big Bang Theory, where they talk about Dungeons and Dragons. Um, you know, these things are becoming more and more mainstream. Oh, yeah. Um, and because of that, people are, are starting to get more interested. Um, and I think it's good to be able to explain to them what it is, how it works, um, you know, because if someone who's never heard of it or has ridiculous expectations, um, you could be like, all right, yeah, come play D&D at my house. And they show up in, you know, wizard's garb <laughs> with a wizard's hat and a wand. And they're speaking in a weird accent you've never heard. You'd be like, whoa, okay. <laughs> I'd actually probably love that. But uh, <laughs> same of uh, being able to um, communicate what all these things are, um, especially it, it gets awkward when you talk about cancellation notices Um, or just like kind of table behavior. Um, you know, sometimes I'll be playing with, with groups and there'll be one character that just makes obscene, ridiculous, dirty jokes. Um, and you'll be like, okay, you know, it's funny to make, um, jokes like that for sure. But every other turn or every few, every 10 seconds and making it just absolutely disgusting that people are sickened by how they're talking, um, or even just like, you know, how food's going to work, who's paying for pizza, um, stuff like that. Like you've, you've missed three sessions in a row. Do you really have the time to do this? That sort of thing I think falls on the dungeon master, mm-hmm. um, because they are the one that is organizing the game, um, in their fictitious world. They kind of have to organize the game outside of that world too. Um, they have to be yeah. responsible for table behavior, um, anyone who feels uncomfortable at the table, um, someone who keeps missing too many sessions, um, you know, keeping track of who's paying for pizza, all that little stuff. I mean, most of the time that does fall on us, the dungeon masters. I feel like a lot of problems that come from D&D, like socially speaking, um, are just a lack of confrontation. Yeah. Go to um, any D&D blog, especially feminist D&D blogs. Um, there are people who are really mistreated at tables because nobody would stand up for them. Uh, mistreatment is sadly a big part of the hobby. And um, a lot, large part of that is just because nobody was willing to stand up and say, hey, stop doing that, yeah. you know, take, to take aside the problem player and talk to them. And I think it's a big problem. And it's as, as a DM, it's your responsibility to be willing to do that. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So moving uh, kind of away from group building um, and like inter- interpersonal party conflict of real players, let's get in the group dynamics of characters themselves. So mm-hmm. one of the big uh, questions that a lot of people ask is about secret keeping. Who should you keep secrets from at the table? Um, and how should secrets um, affect the story going forward, the narrative? and the interactions between characters. So the first question is, should players keep secrets from other players? What do you guys think? The first thing that comes to mind when I hear this question is I played a very brief zombie one-shot kind of game. Um, One of my players wanted to be a con man, uh, but he wanted to keep that knowledge secret from the other players outside of the game and inside the game. Mm. 
because he wanted it to be a kind of plot twist later on down the line. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it was just a one shot, and so that secret went nowhere. It was kind of a waste. Oh, yeah. It meant that he was kind of answering in in ways that were confusing to the other players, and. I don't know. It just didn't go the way we thought. So I think it would be more interesting to, for him to have told the players, but then their characters don't know because then uh, they could have played around it. Yeah, and we'll, we'll definitely talk about metagaming later because that that's a whole other can of worms. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, players from players, this is something I encourage wholeheartedly as a DM. I will oftentimes have campfire talk where you know everyone will sit around a campfire um and instead of just skipping from okay you guys sleep for tonight all right you okay everyone get your hit points back and your spell slots back that was a long rest all right let's get up okay where are you guys heading the next morning no i want them to sit around a campfire and like talk to each other i want them Mm. to have banter i want them to like interact Um, and so my players know i'll just say okay banter and they will start talking to each other (laughs) um and so they know this happens a lot around campfires And so I oftentimes encourage players to keep secrets from other players, especially when they're doing character creation, because then they can reveal those secrets over time to the other players. And secrets don't necessarily have to be like, you know, I'm a a secret serial killer. You know, they can be (laughs) little things about like, um, you know, my wife died. I don't I don't tell anyone Um, or just like big kind of character arc moments where they just, you know, reveal things slowly about mm-hmm. where they got to where they were or who their old mentor was or how they got that scar. I think player to player secrets are vital and they, you know, open up beautiful beautiful role playing elements um that players can dive into and really interact with the secrets between each other. Hmm, okay. All right. I might be convinced. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> oh, well, I guess it was a yes or no question. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's I true. Just... So, so the next one is, uh, should a dungeon master keep secrets from players? Yes, that's the job description. It's yeah, I feel like much... this one's pretty easy. I think these secrets are, yeah, it, it's part of, it's the name of the game. It's, it's in the job description. Like, this is what dungeon masters do. They slowly reveal the plot over time. The skill comes in when the DM needs to figure out how to reveal the secrets mm-hmm. to players. That could be yeah. probably its own episode by itself. Yeah. Of how do you release information without either um, info dumping and just obliterating the players and, and they, their eyes glaze over and they don't pay attention. Yep. Um, or being so cagey and secretive that the players have no idea what you're talking about and just continue doing whatever they were doing. Yeah. Which uh, I've been in both scenarios. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it involves timing of when to reveal certain things. Like a lot of times you'll have kind of a grand plot that you're following, um, whether it's a structured published adventure or it's your own homebrewed stuff. You have kind of a general plot and it's the process of revealing big plot points and when to do it. Because if you kind of, you just dump, you know, you just have this bushel of plot points. You just pour onto the table the first session. Like you said, Will, like they're, the player's eyes will glaze over and they'll forget half of them, probably more. Yeah. Um, so it, I think it's the dungeon mastering is the art of revealing information at the right time. Mm-hmm. Wow. I need to write that down. That's a very quotable soundbite. I'm pretty sure that every time that someone has narrated me, like the setting, I've just tuned out. Like, it's, not, it's and hard, it's not, yeah. It's no, not, it's hard to not. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not. It's not that it's just bad. It's just not interesting in the way that it's conveyed because it's just like reading a Wikipedia page, and I I don't. I'm not really a fan of doing that. Yeah, and it's hard because as dungeon masters, I mean, I'm sure we talked about in our episode about world building. Like we said, we love these worlds. Like this is our baby that we made, mm-hmm. and we want to show it off to the world. Um, but like other people's children, uh, there's a limit to how much other people want to see. <laughs> and uh you have to i I think for me like my main thing was just making a really cool map making a really cool world but in the first session being like here's where you are and here's what's going on but like not giving them the whole history of it i don't care about you know the last thousand years of even just your kingdom like i care about what's happening now most people don't care about the last thousand years of this earth's history true (laughs) Uh, that's they, spoken like a true podcaster <laughs> most people don't care about the history of our world so why why in god's name would they care about the history of your made-up one wow and once again very quotable <laughs> um okay so so a dm obviously should keep secrets from players okay here's the next one should players ever keep secrets from their dungeon master well i'm trying to think like what would you want to keep secret from a dungeon master and there's honestly not a lot. <laughs> like maybe you you have some like OP like cheese move that you're gonna do versus the boss coming up, and you want to keep it secret. But like I don't, I can't really think of anything. Like in general, it's best to be more open. I don't, I cannot think of a scenario where a player knowing something that the GM doesn't would be good right because yeah. i'm thinking that they pull out oh i had a secret submachine gun even though this is like D. <laughs> yeah um it's, it's gonna disappoint the player when they get vetoed it's gonna be frustrating to the gm when the player is just trying to like do their own thing and i think it would indicate a deeper problem with the uh power dynamic in the game yeah i think if you're trying to hide things from a gm then it's a symptom of larger problems that you have in your game mm-hmm. huh that's a good point I think for me, weirdly, with my weirdly specific table, I've got players um, that some of them know the player's handbook better than me. Um, Mm. And so I am such a loose DM that I care more about the story and the plot and the table interactions than I do about the rules or especially leveling up. I find leveling up so boring as a dungeon master, but like a lot of players, I mean, they live for that. It feels good to level up. up. It does. And I guess since I haven't been a player for so long, I've been a dungeon master for years and years, I kind of forget how important and how good it feels to level up. So oftentimes uh, the players, you know, they, they know D&D so well that they level up themselves. Um, and the only thing I do is roll uh, for their health, um, where, you know, where they'll, they'll pick mine or their dice depending on who rolled better. Um, <laughs> and that's all I do in regards to their leveling up because they know how to do it so well already. So a lot of times they'll get spells um, and they'll use them against, you know, my boss. And I'll be like, what? You have that spell? They're like, yeah, I just got it. And <laughs> and I trust them because obviously we've been friends long enough. They've played long enough. They're not going to lie to me. Um, but they will surprise me with spells they've learned or with abilities they've gained that I, you know, don't know the player's handbook well enough. So I guess that's the only time that players kind of surprise me as a DM. <laughs> Your group just never ceases to amaze me at how much of a unicorn it is. It is not. Yeah, it is rare. It's not a standard group. The last uh, question revolving around secret keeping is um, secrets that aren't secrets. 
So this is kind of open knowledge. This is like table metagame knowledge. Um, so what do you guys do to address metagaming at your table? Hmm. And is, has it been a problem for you? I think that the best way that I've seen it have been dealt with is through just directly like calling it out. So huh. if a player is acting based off of another player's actions who's in a different location in game, if that makes sense, and mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and they act differently because of their character acts differently, I'd be like, you wouldn't know that because they're not there. And then mm-hmm. that would I would kind of like nudge them because I don't think that there's a it's it's just kind of breaking the immersion in the game. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of gotta call it out, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I it actually hasn't been that big of a problem for me. Um, I mean, there's always like a, you know everybody splits up in town and somebody's talking to a shopkeeper and combat breaks out and then suddenly everybody just wants to go there for no reason. But then I'm not usually that strict on it because. Honestly, the way I run my game is I try to completely avoid town scenarios because I find most of this stuff happens when players don't have anything better to do. Mm-hmm. And I know I know that uh, Jake runs a much more improv-heavy, story-focused game. And then um, I'm, I'm actually not sure what I would classify David's games as. But at least the way I imagine my games is a lot more focused, though not lately, as David will attest, because I'm experimenting with some different things. But whatever. I would just make sure that they don't have a chance to metagame because they're here and now in the moment. Yeah, it, it, it's been really interesting with my players because, like I said, they know the game of D&D so well that they know some of the stats for the monsters. Um, you know, they, they know what these things are good at, what their weaknesses are, um, you know, soft spots in their armor, that sort of thing. Um, so a way I actually, a way I think I creatively addressed this was one of my players who's, um, very into the game itself, um, actually bought a Volo's Guide to Monsters, um, and read through it. Um, I actually don't own Volo's Guide, so I haven't actually read through it. Uh, so he had that and he, he loves looking at monsters in the monster manual. So what I did was I made his, I, I offered his character the book Volo's Guide to Monsters in the game. <laughs> what? And so he he obviously wanted it so bad that he bought it. So he bought it and then I said, okay, you're now allowed to look through Volo's Guide or the monster manual whenever you want to look at the stats Crazy. of characters. Um, and so I made him pay an arm and a leg for it. But it paid off because he kind of uh, didn't have to stop himself from metagaming anymore because his character, he's playing like an intellectual paladin, you know, kind of like a, a bookish half-work paladin. So he, Ooh. it makes sense for his character to be very intellectual. He's able to now tell his party, you know, what the weakness of the monster is um, because he bought a very expensive book um, and now it kind of allows him to metagame. What a unique solution i would have never thought of kind of incentivizing metagaming but i really like that uh if tell me how that ends up because do you feel like it's harmed your campaign at all not necessarily because a lot of the monsters i'm introducing i'm still running on chult so they uh they're encountering some weird monsters that aren't in volo's guide uh, <laughs> which it, which is great um but no i feel like my characters are also pretty disciplined enough to not metagame for the most part Mm-hmm. Um, because they realize they want to have a fun time. And if they said, oh, we got to aim for its red dot on its head, you know, it, it's kind of, uh, they know it. Red dot on the head, goblin. <laughs> <laughs> it would make it less fun for them. We we talk about our players metagaming all the time, but there's actually an underdiagnosed problem 
um, about Dungeon Master metagaming. And I can't remember where I heard this. It might have been uh, WebDM or some other Dungeon Master YouTube channel. Uh, but they were talking about Dungeon Master metagaming, uh, where hmm. you as the Dungeon Master will try to do the most intelligent thing when you strike a party, even Ooh, though the monster uh... may not know that. So, you know, if you're playing as a Hydra, you might make all of your heads attack the cleric, you know, because the cleric yeah. is the healer of the party and you want to try to get, make this challenging and cut off the heals, even though the Hydra, you know, with might not have the highest intelligence, wouldn't know to attack the cleric instead of the paladin. I heard a really interesting solution for um, the metagaming DM from a channel called Runehammer on YouTube. He used to be called Drunkens and Dragons, but he's rebranded lately. His solution is what he calls the dice mind. And what he does for each of his monsters is he makes it a table, like a D6 table, that has what a monster might do when it attacks. And so it's uh, essentially random. So he has either a random table or he has a flow chart that's like if then. Like if I'm at below 50 health, I do this. Um, and this is just to make sure that he is not responsible for the decisions of the monster. Huh. So if you get into a situation where a Hydra goes and like either always attacks the back, right? He attacks casters, which they wouldn't necessarily do, or it always attacks the person in front, which is not necessarily interesting, right? Mm -hmm. um, just to make it a little more dynamic. And I thought that was a really unique approach because it kind of creates this insulating layer between the, let's say, the outrage of the players at the DM for being, um, what's a nice way to say it? For being unkind. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I can tend to do that sometimes where I know what the party is going to do, so I do things to counter it, like proactively when in game if the the npcs were acting on just the normal information and not based on the metagame information they would do something completely different i think the importance of not metagaming makes the game more lively and realistic because uh -huh. if enemies are acting based off of how they would normally act it it just creates a much more immersive environment for the players to be in and it's much more role play and story focused yeah. yeah yeah it feels more real yeah absolutely let's talk about managing the spotlight because some players are attention hogs yep uh, or even just more assertive and some players are more timid what's the solution here well one of the things that i like to do is try to bring more of the timid players into the spotlight so depending upon the character's race or class you could have specific npcs that are more willing to talk to them or maybe they speak that specific language so they're forced to be the one interacting so mm. it's not necessarily yeah. um it, it kind of helps shift the spotlight personally i haven't encountered too many people who are just so much of an attention hog that like nobody else gets to talk at all usually my parties have been pretty balanced and everyone is kind of doing something a long time ago when i first started playing D, &D which actually wasn't D, &D, I played a game called savage worlds but that's neither here nor there some of the advice that i read was that each session of the game had a main character and that main character is one of the players and it changed every week that way everybody has a chance like literally a whole uh, mission where they're the main thing. And so you delve into their backstory and whatever. The only time I've seen this go badly was one week I had had it all planned out and the player whose week it was um, didn't want to play. 
he said he was sick, but he, he wasn't. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. And he just, he completely refused to play. And I was like, but you don't understand the entire adventure hinges is built on around your character. Oh. And he said, no. And I'm like, well, and uh, that was actually the last time I played with that, uh, that person. Man, that, well, I mean, despite the, 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 the tragedy of that situation, uh, I feel like that totally makes sense with my campaigns. Basically, I have an overarching story um, that they will do. Normally, it's, you know, uh, the rise of Tiamat uh, or it's, you know, going through the Tomb of Annihilation uh, on Schultz. Um, but then I will also encourage my players, whenever they're doing character creations, to make their own personal arc. Um, and you can kind of look at the traits, bonds, flaws, um, all that stuff, and, and, and really, you can kind of make an arc. Um, like, you'd be like, okay, my arc is obviously redemption. You know, my arc is obviously to find my family. Um, you know, my personal character arc uh, is to kill this one bad guy. Um, and so each character will have their own personal arc, um, and then there'll be the overarching story. And, yeah, you'll kind of take turns from week to week, and sometimes you'll do a big quest line point, but then you'll also kind of veer off and do a personal quest that the group agrees uh, is worth it. So yeah, it's kind of finding that balance between the the main um, and the the personal, and managing that spotlight of the characters. I think another example of this and is the, the current season of Critical Role uh, with Matt Mercer. He's he'll tell everyone to leave the room except one character, um, oh. and he will do a personal, like um, you know, fifteen minute session with them where they're either addressed by a, a, an authority figure or, you know, the patron of a warlock shows up. Um, and it's a very personal thing. Um, and then the rest of the party shows back up. Um, and it's super great because, you know, all the party is thinking like, okay, what's happening with that personal arc? Um, and it, they leave it up to the character who is interacting with the DM to like, let them know how much of what happened. Um, so I think it's really That's important so cool. to focus on specific characters every once in a while. That's really cool. I need to watch season two. It's great. It's so good. I think that um, one of the other ways that you can kind of help spread the spotlight is trying to get the players to interact with each other. So if you have a group that isn't necessarily uh, friends with each other, it might be hard because players are acting on their own and they're they don't consider themselves a group so getting the players to interact in game with each other could be a good way of just getting more people to interact so you yeah. have you're you kind of like prompt characters to talk to each other no absolutely i think a way to spur this on even during character creation um is to there's there's a game called fiasco um, which is oh, incredible yeah. Um, it's like a long form improv, uh, two act Coen Brothers play. Like it is mm -hmm. just, it is such a blast, um, where everything goes wrong in the second act and you have to, you, you have your personal character and you start sitting around a table and you have a personal relationship with the person to your left and the person to your right. Um, and so you could be brother and sister with the person to your left and you could be the mentor of the person on your right. Um, and each character has a bond with two of the other characters in the party. Um, and it makes it so much better because, um, a lot of times it's hard to, you know, mash characters together and just say, oh, you all meet in a tavern. 
uh, and you're you're going to go kill this beast because that was on the wanted poster. Um, it, you know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for those characters to care about each other. Um, but if you give them bonds, that's a really, really good way to make the other characters care about each other um, and putting the spotlight on each of those bonds as the plot demands. Have you ever assigned fiasco relationships in D&D? I have, yeah. Um, in fact, I encourage it. I don't necessarily bring out the fiasco rules. Um, and uh, the way the fiasco does it is you draw an arrow to your left and right, and then you write on the arrow what the relationship is, uh, mm-hmm. which is super cool. But no, I, I will just kind of say, you know, you guys, you have to know the character to your left and right somehow. Um, and that easily makes the party more connected. Um, you know, they could be an old friend. Uh, they could be, uh, and they could even be old enemies. Yeah, rivals. Um, and that, oh, yeah. Yeah, rivals. Um, and that adds a whole nother element that makes the party kind of sometimes antagonistic to each other. Um, but it, it builds the character of the party to make it more interesting than just four random adventurers join together to do some random quest and care about each other for some reason, you know. It gives a specific reason for each of them to care about each other. And because of those relationships, you can shine a spotlight on them to, to address certain inter-party conflicts um, that are running alongside the main campaign. I love it. This week's vault question is, if you could be the dungeon master for any group of people, living or dead, who would be at your table? There's so many this. people who I want to play with. There's so with. many, yeah. Like, a lot of times I will see someone, uh, you know, whether they're acting in a TV show or they're just on, you know, a late night comedy show. I'll see them and be like, oh, I would love to be the dungeon master for him. Mm-hmm. You know, or be like, oh, she would be great playing D&D. Um, so, oh, that's tough. An obvious answer that comes to mind is Robin Williams. Oh, yeah. Um, Williams. He was one of I the... I feel the... like, oh. I feel like he'd be great. I feel like he'd, with his accents, I mean, I feel like he'd be a great dungeon master. <laughs> That's true. Um, but uh, I feel like he would be amazing in D&D. Mm-hmm. You're probably right. Yeah. I would want, let's see, Bob Ross. I think he would be a great Bob player. Ross. <laughs> Bob Ross. <laughs> David. <laughs> I think he would be like a really cool bard or just some sort of, some sort of like creative like type player. It's very positive and optimistic, you know, your lawful good type. I'm just, I'm just hearing in my mind Bob Ross say, "I slit the goblin's throat," <laughs> and it's just, it's making me, I, I can't handle it. It's making my brain break. <laughs> Some other people that I would like to play with, maybe like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Oh yeah, he's so charismatic. He's so. I feel like he's playing D and D in most of the roles he plays. Like, Pretty much, kind of over the top absurdity. <laughs> I think another one for me, okay, the the cast of Whose Line Is It Anyway, oh, I feel like would be, I mean, I mean, the nature of D&D is improvisation, especially the game that I like to DM for is all role-playing improvisation, uh, you know, and ridiculous characters. I feel like the cast of Whose Line Is It Anyway, or just mm-hmm. really any good improv troupe in general, uh, would be my optimal table. To DM oh, for another one would be uh, Dan Harmon. Oh, my. oh yeah, he's so just ridiculous. Good. I mean, if yeah, Harmon Quest um, is is essentially that, and he is ridiculous in that with his yeah. 
absurd daddy issues and it's so funny wow well david took my idea for dwayne the rock johnson um i want the rock i want i want justin timberlake i want jimmy fallon Andy samberg (laughs) jimmy fallon would laugh the whole time that what's wrong with that they're just called D laugh the whole time uh oh andy samberg would be freaking hilarious um so this question has actually got me thinking like not just a person Oh, actually, Emma Stone I would pick just so I'd have an excuse to be in the same room with her. <laughs> no, so this got me thinking, like, you could pick just a cast of a show or a movie. Oh. For instance, like, the entire cast of the new Jumanji film would probably be pretty oh, darn I funny. I mean, that, that movie oh, felt like D&D true. for the most part. Oh, yeah, for sure. Or you could have, like, the actual Stranger Things kids. Or, like, they're oh, that'd hilarious. Be funny. People in yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy just, like, playing their oh, characters. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Again, that, yeah, that movie feels like D&D as well. I feel like just a lot of movies these days are uh, basically D&D. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's why D&D is doing so well. <laughs> I think thinking historically, um, even I'm trying to think like uh, Aristotle, like what, what, what his character would be like. Oh. Um, how, you know, absurd and, and, you know, how much. He'd probably ask a lot of questions. Um, but like. <laughs> he would be obnoxious. What about like Tolkien or even, you know, some of the OG Dude, I don't know. No Tolkien way. would build the world for me. And I'd be like, Tolkien, stop. I, this is I wouldn't play with Tolkien. He'd really? speak in Elvish. He'd speak in Elvish the whole time. Like, he comes to the table with 60 pages of character backstory. Oh, yeah. I'm like, come on, John. <laughs> get get your life together. Uh, I Okay, the same thing could go for William Shakespeare. Like, you think he would be mm. good or would he come with like uh too much he, he probably he'd probably have like eight different characters and he couldn't decide which one to play oh no i feel like there'd be a kind of a language barrier just because uh i mean let's well, assume i mean for you know yeah the question is there'd be one between speak. aristotle and me as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah you gotta play in greek huh well Ch- dude charlie chaplin i feel like would be Ooh. a great D player like just even though Ooh. most of his i mean his movies were for the most part silent films like just his emotion like just the way he emotes the way he portrays a character i feel like he he could play like an amazing bard um like i would i would love to see that thanks for listening to vox arcana episode six i'm william i'm jake i'm david we'll see you next time if you have any questions or you just want to give us some feedback, you can email us at voxarcanapodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find our site online at voxarcanapodcast.blogspot.com. We're on every social media network, even Tinder, so swipe right for Vox Arcana. <laughs>